0: You see that faith was active along with his works, or really what it says is your faith was working with your works, and faith was completed by his works. The Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And this is uh, the sort of the meaty part of James. This is when people turn to James. This is the, this is the part of the show that they're coming for. This is the, the piece that people battle over in terms of studying the Bible, because James sounds very different on its face from what Paul will write elsewhere. And Paul, in the book of Romans chapter 3, says almost the exact opposite thing that James seems to say. We should hold that no one is just... We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says... We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's Romans 3.28. And you get here to James 2.24. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So it seems like if Paul and James were standing in a room together, they'd be about to throw down because they seem to be saying the exact opposite thing. Paul is saying you are not justified by anything but faith. And James is saying you are justified by your works and not faith alone. The context, remember, is he's just spent this previous portion of this chapter talking about not showing partiality, about not favoring people based on their appearance and uh, favoring the rich over the poor, and after he gets done talking about that, he's saying that this is a connected issue. This is an issue where your faith, if it's alive, should be moving and affecting how you act. And he's speaking from the outside diagnostically and saying, if I don't see works in your life, and my life, then the diagnosis is clear, your faith is dead. And to make this point... He has these hypothetical conversations with these people that show up in here. He never identifies whether he's talking about a real person has somebody in mind or if he's using them uh, entirely hypothetically, but we can just take it as hypothetical. The first is that he says, if a brother or a sister comes to you and says, I need something, and your response to them is, I hope God provides for you. Bless you, brother. And you send them away, He basically says, what good is that? That's a worthless response. How can you respond to somebody and say that you care about them and then send them on with a blessing? And the way that he phrases these words about this hypothetical response, go in peace, be warmed and filled, has within it this inherent religious assumption about it. He's he's talking about church people saying, man, I hope God provides for you. Well, he's saying, how about you provide for them? How much you put bread in their mouth? How about you put your clothes on their shoulders? How about you give them shelter? If all you can come up with is a some vague religious expression of care, then your faith, there's something wrong with it. And then he talks again in this hypothetical scenario Uh, And he says, this other person will say, you have faith and I have works. Almost as like, you know, I'm gifted with faith and you're gifted with works and that's fine for you. But, you know, not, I'm not the same kind of person. And James says, this is a contrary, this is a nonsensical comparison. You can't have one or the other. You must have both. He addresses specifically people who have theological accuracy in what they believe. You believe that God is one. Here he's quoting Israel's Shema, the prayer that they are meant to pray every day. Hear, o Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Remember, he's he's writing this as as a Jewish pastor to Jewish believers. He's speaking their language. He's quoting this prayer as if this person is quoting it to him. Oh good, you can say that the Lord is one. And then he sarcastically gives them a little clap. Good job, buddy. You believe what the demons believe. Even demons believe that truth about God. They have enough spiritual insight to also know that God is one. Demons believe that. And if what you have and all you have, what we have together, is just theological precision and nothing on the other side of it, you're on the side of the demons. It's not good enough to just believe the right things in your head. And this is oftentimes, unfortunately, where our camp, evangelical Protestant, we kind of hang out. If I believe in my head the right things, that is what God wants from me. How many people, their story is that they grew up in the church, they could tell you all the stories, they could run down the things of what you're supposed to believe, and that is it. They got got to high school, they got to college, they got to young adulthood, and they realized that all those things were just facts that they memorized in church that have no bearing on their life or reality. And what happens? Faith disappears. Any semblance of anything approaching faith disappears and they just walk away and say, well, I've memorized lots of facts in my lifetime. I'll just discard these two. Faith in Jesus is not just the memorization of a set of facts. That is not faith. And that is here what James is addressing. And then he gets into the meat of his example and he goes to Abraham. Abraham, the great exemplar of the faith, of Israel's faith, of our faith, Paul says. And what's interesting is he goes straight to the passages that Paul uses and he talks about them in a different way. Now, we have no indication here that James knew about Paul's writing. This is probably predates Paul's writing to some degree. But he goes straight to these same stories, quoting this thing that Paul will talk about from Genesis 15 where where there's this description of Abraham It says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And James understands that verse through the lens of another story in Genesis where God tells Abraham to go up and sacrifice his only covenant son, Isaac. And Abraham's response is, is to go up to do just that, to hear this word from God, who He has been following, who has miraculously provided for him again and again, chiefly and most beautifully in this very sun. And he walks up this mountain with his son asking him, uh, we see, I got wood, check, rope, knife. We appear to be missing a crucial element of the sacrifice, Dad. And Abraham looks at his son, Isaac, and says, God will provide the sacrifice. And at some point, it becomes very clear to Isaac who the sacrifice will be because Abraham binds him to the altar. And his hand goes up. And God stops him. He says, do not touch your son. Now I know the extent of your loyalty to me. And God provides this alternative sacrifice. James looks at that story and he says, that is the moment when Abraham's faith, when Abraham is justified. Crucial here as we think about Paul and James is this one word, justified. It's theological language, but it's important language. You need to know it. Get familiar with it, even if it's uncomfortable with you, for you. Justify, justification. Paul will talk about this word when he talks about how you are declared right before God. How are you given a status that you are okay before God? How do you receive a not guilty verdict before God if your whole life is telling you, in Romans 3 that you have given yourself over to the power of sin, that you are in fact guilty. How do you receive a not guilty verdict? And Paul is talking about this word justified, justification on a different level. He is talking about it in terms of chronology. What comes first? How do you get that thing, that status? He's talking about the beginning of your spiritual life. He says that... That only happens by faith. But James is talking about justification in a different way. He is talking about the end of the chronology. He is looking at the end of your timeline, the end of your life. And in that moment, how is your faith demonstrated as true? How is it vindicated that that faith was really there and that faith was alive? Paul is talking about the beginning of the story, and James is talking about a different thing. He's talking about the end. And what he's saying is, your faith is vindicated like Abraham's when you see God and you trust Him and you obey Him. When you obey Him, your faith that you claim is vindicated as being true. It must be true. It's demonstrated to be true and real because you acted on it. Paul and James are, are not arguing with one another. They're talking about very similarly related things but ultimately different things that they do not disagree on. Paul equally will say... You must work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul will also say that you will be judged. Everyone gets judged. Everyone. Believer or non-believer. And the works that you do, Paul says, those also get judged and weighed up. Paul does not disagree here with James. John Calvin will talk about these two different ideas of being declared holy and being made holy. And he will say, this is like the light of the sun. You cannot separate illumination from its heat. Both things come from the light of the sun, both illumination and warmth. And James is saying the same thing. If your faith has no heat, it does not come from the sun. It is something else entirely. Because your faith drives you. The language that he he uses is that your faith is working with your works. Your faith is working with your works. He gives one more example, this person Rahab. Rahab is from the book of Joshua, also from the Old Testament. She was a Canaanite prostitute who heard of the impending invasion of these people of Yahweh. He, she meets these spies and believes that Israel's God wins the day. And acting on that belief, she aids the spies. Not only that, but Rahab's story gets intertwined with the story of Jesus. She's, Descent and a forerunner of Jesus, one of Jesus's four foremothers. It's interesting here why Rahab? Why does he do this? Abraham and Rahab. There is a, a tradition that grows up both in the early church and in, in, early, in this period of Judaism that sees Abraham and Rahab as illustrating this principle of hospitality. Because there's other story in Genesis 18 where Abraham must welcome God into his camp and make a meal for him and set a table for God. And Rahab is also hospitable to the people of Israel. Which makes perfect sense in in light of what James has just been talking about in terms of don't show favoritism, don't show partiality, that he pulls these twin examples of hospitality, but also tell us another thing that just because you are a patriarch or you are a prostitute, the work of God, the faith that you have can be acted upon rightly. And this is not an issue of where you come from or how good you feel you are, prostitute or patriarch. The response is the same. A faith that works. Now, James is... Giving these words in this typical, direct way. No holds barred. And it, over the course of your Christian life, if you've been doing this long enough, you've probably come across James at what feels like the worst time for whatever reason, you did the, the flip it and open Bible, meeting retho, Bible reading method, or, or you've read in a Bible plan, or for whatever reason you decide, I'm going to try James this, this week, and you get to James 2, and it's the worst time for you to be reading James. Because you look at your life and you say, there ain't no heat there. I'm barely showing up to church on Sundays. And when I leave on Sundays, Monday through Saturday, maybe even Sunday afternoon to Saturday, I'm living all kinds of ways. Forget hospitality, but all the things I'm hiding in secret, things that I'm doing in public, all the things that James might be referring to when he speaks of works, there's no heat there. And you run into James and you say, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell. My faith is dead. This is what James is telling me. I'm going to hell. This passage does put pressure on you. It does, it does poke at you. Maybe even slices you open. The question here revolves around whether your faith is alive or not. If the diagnosis, if you run into this diagnosis at a terrible time in your life, like I have myself, if you get diagnosed as having a faith that appears to be on its last breath, dying, maybe even dead, then what James would say is you, you you have a faith problem that needs to be solved. What this is not is a prescription, necessarily, for that dying faith. What James is not saying is, if your faith has grown cold, you better work your butt off. You better find the list of things that you are supposed to do and march through that list so that you get back to the place where you have a faith that might be vindicated. A dead or dying heart is not revived by these works. Works flow out of a faith, a heart that is alive. What what is at issue? The first question for you and me if we run into this text and we get a gut check is that maybe our love has grown cold. Maybe In this scenario that Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan were on the screen, we have walked away from the things that flow naturally from love. And here might I offer you a prescription. If your love has grown cold, come see Jesus. If your love has grown cold and you have been burdened by the weight of your sin. Come see Jesus. You cannot see Jesus. I mean, really see Him. And not be won over by Him. Jesus is so much better than you've ever realized. And what you've forgotten is how good He is. Jesus is, is so much more hospitable than he's ever asked you to be. But you, you are the vagrant, the poor one. And Jesus has welcomed you to his table and sat you there without asking you to pay him a dime. You, you may be more neglected than the, God, than the people God calls you to, forgotten and, and far away. And if you read the Gospels, what you see is Jesus who constantly goes to these forgotten, marginalized people and He makes friends with them. You you may have failed to be angry at the things of this world that should make you furious. You've grown comfortable with coming out on top at the expense of all others. And if you will come see Jesus, you'll see a Jesus who picks up whips and drives people out of places of prayer and is chucking people into seas with millstones to to protect the forgotten ones. If your love has grown cold, come see Jesus because He is so, so good. James's prescription for you would not be to try to work your way back to Him, but to see Him again that your heart might become inflamed with love. And if you are running into this passage and you, you are saying, I feel like things are good with me and Jesus, but there's, there's still no heat. Well, then James is going to get into things with you. He's going to say that you cannot be this way and say that you love him and act like you've never seen him. He's going to say that there is no area of life that Jesus' Jesus's hands cannot touch if you actually love him. And so the prescription for you, my friend, if you feel good with Jesus, if you say I, I believe the right things, I, I you know I have I have great prayer life, Bible reading time for you know at least three or four days every single week, but you are looking at your life and seeing no heat. The prescription is this: come see Jesus. Make sure that you're seeing who's really there. Do you love Jesus, who is made in your image, who blesses all your comfort, and would never call you anywhere that you did not approve? Or do you love Jesus? Who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant? Do you do you love Do you love Jesus, who who says, um, "Hold on to your wealth, do what you like with it, give a comfortable amount away," or do you love Jesus? Who would look at a rich young ruler and say, sell everything you have. Who would himself be the demonstration of giving away all that he is entitled to. Do you love Jesus who says, you know, the kingdom is one asset in your portfolio? Or do you love the Jesus who says, the kingdom of God is worth selling everything that you have that you might just have the kingdom if you are comfortable let james discomfort you so that you might be comforted by the real jesus james's prescription our prescription is to come see jesus Let faith come alive. Trust Jesus. Don't do this thing. Don't spend your life being a church person. Don't waste your Sunday mornings. If you just want to come in here and memorize a set of theological beliefs and then go be... a kind of person that you basically want to just skip this part just be the person that you want to be and save your morning every sunday morning but james is saying real faith that sees jesus and sees that he is so entirely worth it real faith is so good because jesus is so 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 good The weight of this Scripture is not meant to bury you. It is meant to push you to Jesus. Jesus is worth this kind of faith that works. It is worth a kind of life that is motivated by love for Him and that would cause you to give it all away because you love Him that faith is alive and real and it changes everything this morning come see Jesus and remember how good he is and come back to life let him catch you on fire again and inflame your heart with love for him because there's no one like him anywhere Anytime. Come see Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are, Your absolute singularity. We thank You, God, that You are so impressively Yourself. Father, we pray that You would help us to see You Rightly that our vision would be clear. God, we pray for all of those who have for years maybe thought they must be good enough, they must pile up their works in order to be approved by You. But instead, they were always meant to just trust You. And for all of those of us, God, who grow comfortable in saying that we trust You, but then we turn around and live our lives for ourselves, our our love, a half-love, a dying love, a cold love. God, help us to turn to You this morning, to see You for who You really are, to be caught, to be enraptured, to be inflamed with love for You. Lord, help our faith to be not the faith of demons that is just in our head, but is a a faith that sits in our affections that results in real relational trust in you. There is no one like you, Jesus. No one has done for us what you have done for us. There is no hero that we long for that compares to you. Everything that we weep over in the world, you are the answer to, the healing for. There is no one like you, Jesus. Help us to see You and to believe and to trust. Put our faith to work, Lord Jesus. Let it be our delight to speak of our delight with You. Comfort all of those who think all of this falls on them. Discomfort all of us who have wandered away and followed idols that look kind of like You. Help us all to see the real You to respond with our whole lives. Do this, Lord Jesus, by the power of Your Holy Spirit to the glory of Your name. Amen.